0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. morning. And thank you for being here today. This morning, our focus shifts. For the past several weeks, we've explored the Heart Sutra, focusing especially on what you might call the concept, or the idea, or the teaching. Of emptiness. Today our focus remains with the sutras that we either chant or recite during service, but we're going to put down the Heart Sutra for a little while. We've had our toes long enough in these deeper teachings and we can put our toes elsewhere or nowhere if you find putting your toes in places unappealing. We're going to turn our attention to the Loving-Kindness Sutra, which we recited during service today. Loving-kindness, or love, really, is our English translation of the Pali word metta, t a. You might have heard of metta practice as something that people sometimes do. It's also our translation of the Sanskrit word maitri, M-A-I-T-R-I. It's sometimes said that the next Buddha to come, after Shakyamuni Buddha, our Buddha, will be Maitreya Buddha, the Buddha of love. We tend to use the word loving-kindness in part because the word love is used in such a wide variety of ways that Sometimes, from my point of view, it's a little meaningless. We say that we love our partner, our brothers, our sisters, our parents, our children, and our pets. And when we do, we are, I assume, signifying something about the relationship that we and them stand in to one another. We're saying something about the feelings that are present, the commitments that we've made, the intentions that we've set. And we're saying something important, I take it, in these contexts. That's in part why it can be scary to say to someone that maybe you've been dating for a little while, I love you. You're saying something of significance to them. The word carries meaning. Yet we also say that we love the arugula salad at such-and-such a restaurant. And we love the cheeseburger at our favorite fast food place. And I doubt that we mean the same thing when we say we love the arugula salad as when we say we love our partner. Maybe you do. might be a really good arugula salad. I don't know. So again... We tend to not use the word love so much as loving-kindness, but both are appropriate translations. Loving-kindness is not the same as passion. For passion, passionate love, for example, tends to find in its company a desire to control or possess the thing that is passion's object. This is sometimes why you can have a jealous partner in a relationship. My love for you is so strong, I just want you all to myself. It's not quite that. Moreover, loving kindness is without any transactional dimension to it. It's not fitting to say, I will show you loving kindness, but only if you do the dishes or if you mow the lawn or if you accompany to my best friend's birthday party, which you may not want to do. Loving kindness is something that we might say flows freely. It's without any kind of conditions placed upon it. It's also not the same as the sort of behavior that downplays or ignores unpleasant and painful parts of our lives. You spend enough time around us. You sometimes hear us talk about bright-siding. I don't quite know why this is the word we use, but I take it that everyone more or less knows what this means. We're not doing that either when we're cultivating loving-kindness or practicing loving-kindness with ourselves or with one another. The presence of loving-kindness does not result in all things being soft and gentle and nice. We do not find ourselves inhabiting the sort of scenes in Thomas Kincaid's Christmas paintings. Rather, we might say that loving-kindness is all-embracing. It offers us a spacious field in which everything has a place, the things we like and the things we don't like, the things that are pleasant and the things that are painful. And with this said, what I want to do this morning is share two ways of engaging with the first part of the Loving-Kindness Sutra. The translation I prefer differs a little bit from what we recited in service this morning, but you'll see the overlap. So it reads as follows. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be stable and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. It's a rather attractive way of being in the world. At least I think it is. When I first encountered it, I was living in Santa Barbara, California. This was 10 or 11 years ago. And I was practicing with what was then the Santa Barbara Zen group and it met at the house of one Tony Johansson. Tony, though not a teacher, he didn't wear any brown robes on Sundays, I sometimes consider to be my first teacher. He'd been a student of Suzuki Roshi's and Katagiri Roshi's at San Francisco Zen Center in the 1960s. And he received the precepts from Suzuki Roshi at some point This was indicated by the navy blue rockasu he wore on Sundays. I never did learn his Dharma name, and I regret that. He passed about seven or eight years ago from cancer. He was always just Tony, kind and gentle Tony. He was the sort of person who, from my point of view, embodied the way of being in the world that's outlined in the first part of this sutra. I, on the other hand, was not. Well, I would read the first part of the Loving-Kindness Sutra, and I would see the many qualities it lists, being straightforward and gentle in speech, being humble and not conceited and contented and easily satisfied. I judged that I had none of these qualities. At best, perhaps, I had nascent instances of one or two of them. Maybe I could be gentle in speech, but I certainly wasn't humble. No matter, though, because here was this sutra that offered me a list. If you were here last week, you heard Roshi say, Buddhists love lists. A list of qualities that I could exert a great effort in cultivating. Someday I, too, would be all of these things, not proud or demanding in nature, peaceful, calm, wise, skillful, and so on. When I approached the sutra in this way, I ended up separating myself from it. I thought, I'm here, but someday I'll be over there, wherever over there is. I'm not the sort of person described in this sutra, but someday I can be. I'd set up lots of goals for myself, namely to become such and such a person who moves through the world in this way. I also understood the gentle, kind, humble and peaceful person described here in a surprisingly rigid way. I thought that once I achieved my goals, that I would always move through the world in that way. I would never make a mistake, as we sometimes put it. There would be no harsh, mean, arrogant, or upsetting behavior from me. I would be perfect. A word that at times I suspect contributes to a great deal of harm though it's born from the best of intentions. And finally, this perfect behavior that I had constructed in my mind and set up as a goal for myself would flow from me in only one way. Sometimes when we're at the tea table, Roshi asks whoever is sharing to speak a little louder. And this request is often followed by, you know, everyone who meditates believes that they need to talk really quiet, as though they were church mice, right? You notice sometimes when a newcomer comes around, it's time for them to introduce themselves and they go, We laugh, perhaps, but it's not all that silly. There's an image that circulates of what and how Buddhists are like. And we as Buddhists, or the Buddha curious, I don't want to label any of you prematurely, consciously or not often conform to at least parts of that image. By a show of hands, how many people are wearing mala beads today? Let's see. Similarly, sometimes we find ourselves too comfortable in a way of thinking about how frugality, humility, and gentleness manifest through us in the world. I say all of this... To not then say that this way of relating to the first part of the loving kindness sutra is wrong or incorrect or mistaken, I'm not going to say that. Um, But I share all of this with you to provide an opportunity for contrast. Because the way in which I relate to the sutra today is different. I won't say that it's right, And I won't say that it's correct, and I won't say that it's better. First, I understand the way of being in the world that it describes as dynamic. The characteristics collectively offer an orientation for continual, ongoing practice. These are not goals to be reached and then done, but every day, every moment, we have a chance to work on them in our lives as we move through the world. And second, I see this way of being as spacious. What form my ongoing practice of loving-kindness takes is not rigidly determined beforehand. It's not as though if in a meeting with someone I say something unskillful, the thing to do, according to our practice, is pull out my rule book and open to page 475 and see what it says to do when you say something unskillful in a meeting. And if it did, I wouldn't carry the book in the first place. It's probably too heavy. But skillful responses are arrived through the eye of practice in that moment. And these insights together allow me to see a third. And that's the inclusivity of being in the world in this way. And this is really what I want to focus on in the remainder of the talk. And through a passage from the writings of our first ancestor in Japan, this is Dogen Zenji. And I'm also doing this because Daigen is back and Daigen is our resident Dogen quote machine. Before I lived here, and was practicing intensively with Mado. I lived down in State College, and Daigen and I would commute back and forth to the Zendo together. He already knows what I'm going to say. (laughs) And there was one car ride where I counted. He quoted Dogen 35 times. (laughs) Every time I tell this story, it gets greater in number. Next time, it'll be 42 or something. It's one of the ways in which I show my affection for my dear Dharma brother. 52 times now it was. I said a moment ago that I thought there would come a day when I would never make a mistake. There would be no harsh, mean, arrogant, or upsetting behavior from me. At some point, I no longer thought this way. Dogen can help explain why. In a short section of a very long book, he writes the following. Since ancient times, these words have been spoken both in India and in the Deva world. One who falls to the ground uses the ground to stand up. One who ignores the ground and tries to stand cannot. The meaning is that those who fall down to the earth stand up on the earth. It is impossible to get up without using the earth. Some people interpret this as great enlightenment, which is the desirable way to become free from body and mind. Thus, when being asked how Buddhas attain the way, They say it is like those who fall to the ground and use the ground to stand up. Thoroughly investigate this and penetrate the views from the past, the future, and this very moment. Great enlightenment, beyond enlightenment, further delusion, and loss of delusion are immersed in enlightenment, immersed in delusion. They all fall to the ground and get up using the ground. This is a wonderful passage. (laughs) We could say that in the beginning, I thought there would come a day when I would never fall down. I would instead always walk straight and sure-footed, stable and upright even. What do we read here though? The greatly enlightened, those who have gone far beyond enlightenment, those who are in delusion, and those who are lost, utterly lost in still further delusion, all of them are in fact immersed in enlightenment and immersed in delusion. That is, everyone falls to the ground and everyone gets up using the ground. I want to give us a concrete example to work with. One line in the first part of the Loving Kindness Sutra says that the person skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace is humble and not conceited. How do you understand this? What does it mean to be humble? How does someone who is not conceited move through the world? What I want to suggest to you this morning is that the way in which we practice humility is more inclusive than we may initially appreciate. Certainly it's more inclusive than I initially appreciated. We can say, obviously, that someone practices humility in being not conceited by being humble and not conceited, walking straight and sure-footed in the world. But sometimes we fall to the ground. That is, we behave in a not-humble way. Perhaps we behave in an excessively self-deprecating way, in a way that reveals of how little importance we consider ourselves. Sometimes this is an obstacle for those who first come to practice. They hear these wonderful teachings, you too can be enlightened, you are already enlightened, everyone is already enlightened, and they say, not me. I'm the exception, I'm just not good enough, I'm not special enough, or I'm so special that I can't already be enlightened like everybody else is. When we become aware of how it is that we are behaving, that we have fallen to the ground, we are then presented with a choice. We can either reject that of which we have become aware that I'm a little too hard on myself sometimes. Just going to ignore that, though. Maybe it'll get better. It won't. You'll just be left on the ground. Or we can accept it, and then we can set an intention to change our behavior. As I said, if we ignore it, we're left laying on the ground but if the latter, we use the ground to stand up. We use that moment of falling down as an opportunity for inquiry and investigation. What is happening right here, right now, when I'm beating myself up in this way, thinking that I'm not gentle and kind and peaceful and skilled? If we choose... We can step into that opportunity. We can use it to become right-sized again. And here that means not thinking too little of ourselves. We can, it seems to me, practice humility and being not conceited by being not humble and being conceited. Dogen does not conclude his discussion with the above. He has a lot to say about falling down to the ground. And he continues with the following. Here is one vital path for getting up. One who falls to the ground uses the sky to stand up. And one who falls to the sky uses the ground to stand up. Without being thus, you can never get up. This has always been the way with all Buddhas and ancestors. Sometimes, when we fall to the ground by behaving in an excessively self-deprecating way, we can practice being humble and not conceited by simply not thinking too little of ourselves going forward. Sometimes you hear people say this to you. Stop saying that to yourself about yourself. Stop thinking that way. They might have a point. Other times, though, if this pattern of behavior is particularly strong, sometimes we say that there's a strong current of habit energies moving us in a particular direction, encouraging us in a particular direction. It can be appropriate to practice being humble and not conceited by exaggerating some our sense of self-importance. Call this using the sky to stand up. Aware of our strong tendency to behave in a self-deprecating way, we swing with some effort in the opposite direction, and over time return to being right-sized. In the instructions for Zazen, you're sometimes encouraged when you sit down to not just like this on the cushion, but you're encouraged to rock from side to side like so. And in that way, you come to finding your center. You come to be sitting stable and upright for that period. Here too, it seems to me that we can practice humility and being not conceited by being not humble and conceited. And the same is the case in other directions, too. Sometimes we behave in a not humble and conceited way by revealing our exaggerated sense of self-importance. You may say here that we fall not to the ground, but to the sky. And what can we do when this happens? The same thing as when we fall to the ground when we become aware of how it is that we are behaving, that we have fallen to the sky, that I'm walking around just a bit too full of myself, we are then presented with a choice. We can either reject that of which we have become aware or we can accept it and then we can set an intention to change our behavior. If the former were left flailing in the sky, I don't know what this looks like, but be creative. If the latter, we can use the sky or the ground to stand up. We use that moment of falling down as an opportunity for inquiry and investigation. Again, what's happening right here, right now? What's going on within me? And if we choose, we can step into the opportunity that's been presented to become right-sized again. So this is what I mean when I say that these days I understand the way of being in the world described in the first part of the Loving Kindness Sutra in an inclusive way. We can practice humility and being not conceited by being humble and not conceited. And we can practice humility and being not conceited by being not humble and conceited. It's all part of one continuous way of being in the world. Thank you.